My name is Lamar Hardwick. I'm a husband, father of three, pastor, scholar, author, and all-around avid reader and lover of all things culture. And in 2014, at the age of 36 years old, I was diagnosed with autism. This is the Autism Pastor Podcast, where we discuss all things culture, politics, faith, religion, and spirituality, all through the lens of someone loving, learning, and living while on the autism spectrum. Welcome to the Autism Pastor Podcast. Hey, this is Lamar. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, you're listening to the Autism Pastor Podcast with Lamar. In this episode, I take you into a conversation that I recently had with Lori Neff of InterVarsity Press. Lori has been my marketing manager for my new book, Disability in the Church, released February 9th of this year. And so this episode actually originally appeared on a Zoom conference webinar and also on Facebook Live on InterVarsity Press's Facebook page. But now I'm going to take you into a conversation uh, that Lori and I had about autism in the church and my new book, Disability and the Church. Enjoy. And um, I've just really enjoyed so much your insight on this topic specifically. And I have really appreciated your story. And mm. so I wonder if we might start there, if you can tell us a little bit about um, how your story intersects with this topic of um, disability in the church. Sure. Um, so I'll start by saying most people uh, online have come to know me as the autism pastor. Um, I should say, because I get questions about that, that's not actually a term I came up with. <laughs> um, so years ago, I was diagnosed um, in December of 2014 uh, with autism spectrum disorder. Um, and that comes after just decades of struggling with things I didn't know how to explain. Um, so I, I knew probably around the age of seven or eight that there were significant differences between me and other children. The best description I can give is like the world was in on an inside joke that I didn't understand. And so I uh, did what many in the autism community uh, have come to know is called masking. So you basically you do all the things that you see other people do because you don't want to stick out. You don't want to be bullied. Um, but, I, but I knew uh, around seven or eight and it wasn't until age 36 um, I hit what I call a proverbial wall. 
And I finally uh, decided to try to get someone to help me to make sense of my life and why I struggled with relationships and understanding things. Um, and so I was officially diagnosed uh, on the autism spectrum. And so when I started writing about it uh, in 2015, I had a woman who I don't even know where she is now, who said, you know, you are like the pastor for the autism community because we don't have many of us don't go to church. And so I became sort of their resource for spiritual care. And so autism pastor actually came from her. <laughs> um, so I changed all my handles online because it just made it easier for people to find me. That sounds like such a gift to the community too. Um, and I, I am struck with how you describe that. Like every, your experience growing up, how it felt like everyone was, um, in on, on something that you didn't know, um, what that was about. That, that exclusion feels so, um, so hard. And, and I, I like how, um, the way you talk about um, disability in the church, it's about inclusion. Right. Um, that that just struck me as a really powerful way to frame this. Um, and I'm sure that's obviously very intentional on your part. So it's not mm -hmm. just about um, offering a space over there. Right. Um, those who are developmentally disabled or, or are on the autism spectrum, but it's about including. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that sort of prompted that is that that's, that's the season that our culture and our faith communities are in, right? We are coming to realize, especially after, you know, sort of the rough summer we had in this country last year, uh, we're realizing that, you know, a lot of what has been known to be right and true has come from one set of voices, um, and so now our culture is saying, you know, we need more inclusion. We need more a variety of different voices and experiences to help shape everything from education to faith communities to, you know, employment, because it's been primarily one set of voices that have decided what's right for everyone. Um, so the push towards diversity and inclusion intersects with disability, because if we're talking about including minority voices and bring them to the table. Um, what I found is that we have to actually start with what statistically is the largest minority group in the world, and that's persons with disabilities. That's about 20% of people in the world, about one in five, have, a, have some sort of developmental, intellectual, or physical disability. And so if we're talking about inviting minority voices to the community, that's the community that's often overlooked. And so it, being able to include them into the spaces where we can understand their experiences will also help shape this movement for diversity and inclusion. And, and I say this in the book, um, the disability community is the only minority, minority group that you can join at any time for any reason. Uh, and so I think it's important for people to understand that while they feel as though it might impact them personally, um, we all know that, you know, if you live long enough, actually, you'll become a part of this group because at some point you'll need some assistance in helping your body function uh, in a way that helps you live as normal as possible. So it's a, it's a big issue and that helped shape the idea for the book. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a justice issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really appreciate uh, your vision for um, for this in the church context. And mm -hmm. you are a pastor currently yep. yourself. Yes. How how have you seen this play out in your own context as far as um, efforts for inclusion? If you can give maybe a couple examples of a change maybe mm -hmm. that has happened. Yeah, so one of the biggest changes um, was when I disclosed my diagnosis to uh, my congregation. Mm. Uh, it f actually freed other people in the congregation who were wrestling with issues that they were in too embarrassed to talk about because of the shame and stigma that is often associated with disability. And so um, what I learned is that the church has made that a taboo subject. And because of that, we don't even realize that there are people uh, in our congregations or on the periphery of our congregations who are wrestling with a lot of issues. In the book, I talk about um, King David, how he lets us in on a secret of his life when he shows up to fight Goliath. For the first time, we learn that he's been fighting lions and bears, right? He says, I've fought lions, I've fought bears. And it's almost to say that there are battles that I've been fighting that you have no idea about. And so I use that as an analogy to say that there are many people in our churches and on the periphery of our churches who are fighting battles and fighting lions and bears that we have no clue they've been fighting. And creating an opportunity for it to be okay to talk about those things helps us to get a better understanding of who we can dialogue with to help us better shape our churches because they're, they're there. If it's one in five, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even though we've made them a visible, invisible community, it's still a very large community. And mm -hmm. so we just need to make our churches safe places to talk about those things so that we can engage with, with the people in our community about how to do things better and invite them to the table to share with us how we need to do better as a church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's helpful to hear. So can, can you kind of um, flesh out a little bit? What are we missing um, when we are not an inclusive community for um, those who are disabled? In, in mm -hmm. any way, and then and maybe specifically, since we're kind of around autism awareness um, time, let's see, the Autism Awareness Day was Friday, right? Right. So um, I guess maybe in relation to autism, what are we missing when mm -hmm. we're not being in inclusive? Yeah, so and there's been lots of studies on this, like organizationally, um, I talk about in the book, um, some of the organizations have done some research on this, primarily if you're talking about just inclusion in general. Um, and this certainly applies to the disability community and the autism community specifically. Mm -hmm. When when we're not inclusive, we decrease the amount of learning and growth that can take place. Because again, we're only um, listening to and being shaped by stories of people who are very similar to us, mm -hmm. which makes it very difficult then to be uh, more inclusive, but also to learn more about the world and the way other people experience the world, the way that other people experience faith and God and the Bible. <clears throat> and so it significantly challenges our organizations to be the best that they can be because we're missing so many great uh, opportunities to hear from people whose lives are dramatically different than ours. Uh, and so, you know, I like to tell churches that we, th we think our churches are great, but when we're not being inclusive, that we are at best only at half strength. Mm -hmm. 
mm. when we don't include uh, people from the disability community. And then as it relates specifically uh, to autism, I, I can say this about myself and I don't propose to speak for all people on the spectrum because mm-hmm. everyone's different. Um, but there, I often tell people, you know, if it's true, I think this, the stats now are one in 54. Um, <clears throat> and so and I've said this to young people on the spectrum that I've mentored. If you're in the room with 53 other people, there's at least one thing that you can do that they can't. And so what that means is that we bring a very different understanding of the world into contexts and spaces that primarily don't have experience with that. And it helps to bring balance. It helps to bring learning. Uh, it also helps to strengthen people's understanding, again, of, of God, of faith. I'm often the person in the room who always sees things differently. Um, but I think it's helpful because then we see we see life differently and we're able to expand our understanding of, of God. So I would say, you know, we're missing that when we don't include people with disabilities, specifically people with autism. And the last thing I'll say about that is one of the primary images in the new Testament of the life of faith is this contest between what Paul calls flesh and spirit, right? Who better to teach us how to navigate that than people whose bodies are constantly doing things that they're not necessarily choosing. So I tell people that I live in a world that my brain is not necessarily built for, but you can see in the life of persons with autism and other persons with disabilities that there's this constant uh, battle between flesh and spirit, literally. And they live a life of faith in a way that is dramatically different from just understanding that idea. Like that's a real thing for me. Mm-hmm. is my faith has to lead the rebellion against my body because sometimes my body does things that I don't want it to do. And mm-hmm. so it, for me personally, I've learned that it, it unlocks a whole other level uh, of understanding God and faith because you're literally not just mm-hmm. thinking about that as an idea. This is my life every day. Um, mm-hmm. There's a war between what my faith says and what my body says I can do. So and I, th- and I think when we don't include people like that, we miss some of the important lessons that we can learn about spiritual growth. Hmm. Yeah, I I really I love the the depth and richness and how um, self aware you are. I I can see this as um, something this. Um, offering of this different perspective especially within uh, the church context um it can be affirmed and um by the church community and can help enrich the life of that individual with a different perspective i'm thinking back to how you described um you know being an outsider and and i could just keep on circling back to that thought of how can we be inclusive how can we affirm these gifts and um different perspectives that others whoever um whatever their um uh disability or um mindset is how do we include and affirm that Mm -hmm. as a gift for the church i'm really i'm i'm loving that and I'm also kind of going back to something you said earlier. Um, you you said that uh, disability is taboo in the church. Mm-hmm. Why? 
Why do you think that is? Is it fear? I think a large part of it uh, mm -hmm. may be that. Um, but quite honestly, I think that we haven't done enough work on learning how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that there's still some very bad teaching about it that has taken root in our churches over centuries. And so um, you'd be surprised to still hear that there are large contingencies of, of people. And I'm not saying this to be disparaging, um, mm -hmm. but there are still large contingencies of people within Christianity who still very much believe that um, persons who are disabled in any form um, still a result of sin or some sort of curse or the parents mm -hmm. did something wrong. Um, and, and so you would think that those things would have changed over the years. Um, but I've surprisingly come across literally hundreds of families who've messaged me um, in some form or another who would say, yeah, there, that's still very much a prevalent thought in a lot of circles. Um, and so I think some of it is fear. I think some of it is we've got to unlearn some of the things that we initially okay. thought, which is which is why it's so important to follow Jesus' lead, right? When he runs into the man born blind mm -hmm. and his disciples ask him who's saying him or his parents. And I like to tell people that's actually a ridiculous question, right? How much could an infant have sinned <laughs> that, that he was, you know, blind from birth? Um but Jesus changes the question, right? He changes it from them asking, why can't this man see to how can God be seen when he says, you know, neither of those things are true. It's so that God's glory can be seen in him. And so I think some of it too, is we've for centuries, we've been asking the wrong questions about these types of issues. Hmm. Um, and Jesus sort of leads us in a different direction to say, okay, that's a good question, but the more important question is how can God be seen? How can we affirm the image of God in all of humanity? Because disability doesn't distract from that. It doesn't deter from that. Uh, and it doesn't make God's image more deficient in a body that is not quote unquote normal. So I, I think we need to go back to what is foundational about Christian faith is that we believe that humanity bears the image of God. Mm -hmm. That means that there should be no exceptions to that. And if we can go back to that, I think we can stop making it so taboo mm -hmm. because we can appreciate whatever it is that God is trying to do in the life of a person who may be differently abled, that, that God is very much still seen in, in that life. Mm -hmm. So so we've got a lot of work to do. I think it's yeah. it's, it's still something that we struggle with. And then I think also, it's, it's ignorance. We don't know enough about it. We haven't done enough education or exposing ourselves to mm -hmm. people who who are definitely able and disabled mm -hmm. to know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. What what should we say? How should we talk about it? What is ex acceptable? Yeah. What are some of the things that we have said over the years that have been hurtful that we need to stop saying? Um, and so some of it, too, is proximity. If if you notice in the book, I talk about how that population is missing. The problem with that is when they're missing, we don't get better at actually engaging. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and that part of your book broke my heart. Um, honestly, I think I cried a little at that point. 
because if the church is not a welcoming place um, for, let's say, um, there's a child um, who has some needs, it's differently um, disabled, differently abled or disabled on the autism spectrum, or maybe have has sensory issues. The church, as it's constructed, or you know how most services are, it's not welcoming. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they opt to stay home. Yeah, of course they would. Of course. Yeah. So what? I wonder if you have any thoughts for families who are kind of um, navigating this. Maybe a way to approach the church leadership. Maybe would you recommend something like that for education yeah. or conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. One of the things that I have. Um, discovered as I sort of traveled and did various disability ministry conferences is I get great people who come up to my table to talk to me after I've done a session. Um, but I very rarely have seen any pastors at these conferences. Like it's usually family members, um, people who have some sort of personal stake in it, people who are uh, enthusiastic and hopeful that they can go take this information back to their church and make a difference and the thing that broke my heart and the reason why I wrote the book the way that I did is I wanted it to be um, theological enough for pastors, but also accessible enough for families to say, I've read this book and I can explain these concepts to my pastor who may not understand them. Um, so, so one would be to always look for great resources and certainly you know, my book is one, but there's so many great resources out there written by other people. Um, it's a look, look for those resources and maybe give bite sized pieces of information to your pastor. Um, and I talk about it in the book. I'm a pastor. I get it. I know that we're busy. Like we mm-hmm. have, you know, it's hard to, to take one more book from one parishioner who says, Hey, yes. read this. <laughs> right. But if you could take, um, you know, combine that with your personal story, even if you, you know, I encourage people, you know, make a video of like what a day in your life is like for you. Oof, yeah. Um, and maybe time lapse it and send them a three minute video and say, this is what life is like for us. We need our church to support mm-hmm. um, other resources. I would say tap into leveraging the people that your pastor respects. Um, a lot of times, if they know that uh, another pastor or another organization has been reading this material, it may prompt them to say, oh, well, I respect that group. Uh, I respect that pastor. Maybe that's something that I should look into. Um, But then I also encourage families to, unfortunately, every church is not going to be for everyone. But there are a few things I even talk about in the book to say, here's things that you should look out for. For example, you know, if you're looking for a church and you want it to be more inclusive, they may not have everything that you need up front. Um, but look for churches that, for example, value people over programs. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a great example in my previous church that I pastored where I helped start a, the ministry there before I left is we had a family uh, come in during the summer. We sort of shut down kids programming, only have it only had it for a certain age and under because we struggled to get volunteers, people on vacation. And then, you know, once you hit Memorial Day, the tennis tends to go down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for about a six or seven week stretch, we had it just for five and under. But we had a family that had two children that had special needs. 
Um, and so we totally just redid the whole program just to accommodate them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we weren't so stuck on the program that we had set in place mm-hmm. that we were willing to turn away a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you got to look for churches that value people over programs. It was more important to us for them to stay and be welcome than it was for us to stick to what we had already planned. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, look for churches that value circles over rows. I talk about in the book. And so if you if you find a church that is um, focuses a lot on small groups, whether that's Sunday school, home groups, whatever it looks like, they tend to have a higher value for relationship. And that tends to go a long way in helping them to learn how to become more inclusive, because for them, it's not just about sitting in rows on Sunday morning. It's about connecting people with other people. And stories change people's hearts, mm-hmm. right? So if you have that sort of relationship, um, relationship building type of church, then it's easier for you to try to find your way in there. And the last thing I'll say about that is um, I think one of the things I'm pushing is for us also in the disability community is to not let the church off the hook any longer. Mm. I think because we stayed away and I and understand it has been very difficult for a lot of people. I've had my share of difficulties. Um, but I think us staying away from the church has let the church off the hook. And um, I think we're in a season now where because of everything we saw last summer and that our culture is now saying, okay, we've got to do better at diversity and inclusion. I think this is also an opportunity for the disability community to say, okay, church, we've let you off the hook. Uh, as Christians, it's also our birthright to be a part of a local faith community. Mm. And we want you to be accountable to giving us the kind of support that we need so that we can be a part of the faith community. Because the church is the most, in my opinion, the most underutilized resource for families mm-hmm. impacted by disability. We're just not, we just haven't always been very good at supporting them. So mm-hmm. I think we need to not let them off the hook. Mm-hmm. and and challenge them to we'll come with everything that you you need to know and we'll teach mm-hmm. you but they need the church now needs to be more accountable for for serving this community mm-hmm. yeah well said um yeah yeah you said a lot there that i'm i i am this is this is why i'm so grateful we're having this conversation i so what i'm what i'm hearing is that um so much of the work is what i'm hearing kind of needs to be prompted by the families um in the church context just to just to let people become aware of their context and is that is that true that feels like a lot to put on families yeah. maybe that's just our reality i i don't know what do you what do you think of that yeah, it's 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 a hard reality, and so I don't want I don't want to suppose that all the work has to be on those families. They have enough. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. And I kind of didn't think that's what you were saying, but I but I wonder if the initiation, maybe yeah. just to have that first conversation. Yeah, just the initiation, and mm-hmm. and I think the the consistency. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I talk about in the book as it relates to disability and inclusion is that, you know, the disability rights movement is a child of the civil rights movement. Um, So that playbook came from the civil, if you study the civil rights movement, it was African-Americans and others who joined with them who had to initiate 
these conversations and say, you know, we want, you know, better housing, we want voting rights, we want. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was an initial uh, push to say, you know, we deserve better uh, as citizens of this country. And so what I'm suggesting is that the work is not necessarily all on the families, but for the families to find their voice and to say we deserve better from the church and to hold the church accountable mm. for the ways that it has failed in the past. And and so I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I love the church. I consider myself an apologist for the local church, which is why I'm also very critical of the ways that we have not served this population well. But it's also meant to empower, you know, the autism community specifically and the disability community at large to say, you're still very much valuable to God. Mm-hmm. And and just like the civil rights movement, they had to say, we deserve better. Um, I want to give those families the confidence to say, we deserve better. And we're not going to be accountable for doing all the work, but we will initiate the conversation and the movement to say, we deserve better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and may... Uh, the way be paved a bit by conversations like this, by your book, so that our church leaders will be open and and more receptive to hear um, the input of families who are impacted. Can I ask, okay, this is a little bit of a nitty gritty kind of educational question that I'm trying to sort out. So on Friday, it was the World um, Autism Awareness Day, and a couple of my friends shared a meme that had some language um, around autism that kind of it caught me off guard a little, and I wanted to get your opinion, if you don't mind. So um, someone I love, a family member, deals with bipolar disorder. And so I purposefully do not describe them as a, a bipolar person, but someone with bipolar um, disorder. And the meme that I, that I saw um, shared on, on social media said, those in the autism community would prefer being described as an autistic autistic person not a person with autism Mm -hmm. do you agree with that it it caught me off guard yeah so that's the it's the age-old debate in the autism community about identity first language versus person first language yeah Um, identity Mm -hmm. first would be autistic person Mm -hmm. person first language would be person with autism Mm -hmm. um to be honest with you, I use both interchangeably. You You're probably, the autism pastor, yeah, so <laughs> you probably will hear me say autistic person more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason why there's a, a push for that um, is because autism is unique in that it is it's neurological, and so what a lot of people who prefer identity first language, which is autistic person, they believe that because this is a part of my neurology, it's hard to separate that from my personhood. And so to say that I'm a person with communicates that autism is like an accessory to my personhood (laughs) versus the fact fact that because it's my neurological makeup, it is who I am. It is how I see the world is, you know, it's, it's, it's the makeup of who I am. You, you can't separate my neurology from my personhood. And so I think that's where a lot of that comes from. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tend to just want people to explain how they want to be identified, but you'll, you'll tend to see more adults uh, in the autism community prefer identity first language, which is autistic person. Okay. Um, but I, I honestly, I understand them both. You'll probably hear me say autistic person more, mm-hmm. um, but I don't disparage mm-hmm. anybody who prefers yeah. person first language yeah. either. Um, so that's sort of a history of where that mm-hmm. comes from. Yeah. That's that's really helpful, and I I think questions like that can open up. Um, other nuance and helpful conversation perhaps um, within mm. the church I, I I've even I've heard you even in this conversation describe uh, the community as the disability community or differently disabled community and um, and so I can see there's there could be preferences in in different contexts yeah so being open and teachable sounds important yeah I think just honoring trying to honor them all without alienating people my goal is to try to bring people together um and so you know what i would encourage people to do is you know just like you did ask the question and be open to to understanding why people view things a certain way um i know for some people disability is not a term that they prefer to use so you hear me use it interchangeably and even in the book i use things interchangeably as to not alienate people but to make sure that I'm properly communicating all of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this this community. Yes, yes, that's great. I feel like I get a little choked up whenever you talk about inclusion and you know not wanting to alienate anyone. I I just feel that so closely that uh, that's that's so important. It's so crucial. Yeah. Um, and I'm so grateful that you've written this book and um, that it is being received so well. Um, I. I wonder, as we kind of end our conversation this morning, mm-hmm. do you have a um, do you have a hot tip for us? Like, what's what's one thing, just one thing, that our churches can do this next Sunday mm-hmm. to bring more inclusion into the church? Do you have any any ideas? Yeah, I, I kind of go back to something I alluded to, and that's you know, make it okay to talk about it. Um, and mm-hmm. so, because you know, April is a month where it's a lot of focus on autism, it's a good way to find the inroad to that. Um, so it doesn't feel so much out of place, especially if you haven't been doing that prior, talking about any sort of disability at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, you know, a church is a place, most churches um, are places of word and table, right? So we celebrate the table, but we also celebrate. And so the word, right? And and so communication is a huge part of our weekend experience. Mm-hmm. What is said, what is sung, what is prayed from the platform uh, generates momentum, generates energy, generates interest, generates curiosity. Um, and so you cannot expect your church to become more inclusive if you don't leverage the thing that the church does best, which is, you know, set a place, a table for all to come and observe communion, but also set a place where the words that are being sung, spoken, and prayed generate some curiosity into how this intersects with my life of faith. And so mm-hmm. it sounds very simple, but but that's what the church does. We mm-hmm. use our words to ignite passion. We use our words and ignite curiosity. We use our words to, to generate interest in the things that we believe God is up to. And so 
use that those those opportunities preach about it um invite families that are impacted by autism or, or other disabilities to share and to share their story um, but not also not just share their story but invite them to help shape the church mm, uh, amen because yeah. those are going to be the voices that help us get better at the things that we have not. And so I would say start there. Talk about it. Don't shy away from it. If you're not an expert on it or if you don't feel comfortable, find someone who has direct experience with it. Preferably, we want to center those voices anyway. Um, yeah. But, yeah, find an opportunity to leverage what the church does well. We are people of the word. And so use our words to ignite a passion for serving this community. And that can be done as quickly as this coming Sunday. Um, and so, you know, I'm just asking the church to do what we do. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. Just, just add this conversation mm-hmm. to what we already do and use that to spark people's passion for being of service, not just for, uh, but service with with yeah Yeah. Mm, that's yeah that's wonderful i i love the reminder uh of just do do what we do best the church what the church does Mm -hmm. and be mindful be inclusive in language and intentional the intentionality well thank you um lamar for this conversation today this has just been so um inspiring and um helpful